Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for attending the next to last session on the first day of pain week. Who's ready for, more, for five more days? All right. Wonderful. Um, a couple of housekeeping things, if you would. Please silence your mobile devices out of respect for your peers and for our speaker today. And then also, if you haven't yet, please download the Pain Week app. We are looking for all feedback on the sessions and the event. So um, welcome. This is event and, uh, excuse me, course code CRS04, mirror, mirror on the wall, graded motor imagery to treat complex regional pain syndrome. Our distinguished speaker today is Dr. Michael Boutros. He's an associate professor of anesthesiology and also the associate chief of the Division of Pain Management at Wash U School of Medicine. He's also the director of the Acute Pain Service at Barnes Jewish Hospital, Department of Anesthesiology, Division of Pain Medicine out in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, with that said, please help me welcome Dr. Boutros. Can you guys hear me okay? So um, this is a topic that's very uh, near and dear to me because outside of Washington University, um, most people that I talk to don't know much about graded motor imagery. And what's funny is that for all the trainees that go through our program, the fellowship, the fellowship program, fellows and residents, um, in the last five years, graded motor imagery has been basically the mainstay of how we treat our CRPS patients. And we're a large referral base for CRPS. And so it's funny because they go through the program and they think, okay, well, this is how you treat CRPS. And they go out into the real world and basically they, they, no one else has heard of it. And they're just shocked at at what's going on. And so the, hopefully this brings light to this. We're in the process of uh, uh, manuscript is, is uh, being finished up and we're going to be submitting soon. So I'll be presenting some data uh, that, uh, that you'll be hopefully seeing soon in publication. So you're kind of getting a preview of, of what we've been doing in the last couple of years. And uh, well, mirror, mirror on the wall. There you go. So um, what I'm going to do with you today is I'm going to spend the first uh, half to two-thirds of the talk reviewing CRPS um, because I want everybody to get caught up to the same level that I want everyone to be at before talking about some of this data with graded motor imagery. How many of you treat patients with CRPS or have treated? Good, and I'm sure that that's why you have a vested interest in this topic about what we do and how we do it. So I'm going to review the Budapest criteria, which I'm sure some of you know about the proper way of uh, diagnosing uh, complex regional pain syndrome. I will be talking about the history behind it as well, but this is sort of your, object your objectives. Hopefully we can meet these goals. I want to review the treatment options available for CRPS, and then I want to uh, make sure that I review with you all the components of graded motor imagery, and here's the catch, in proper order. And the reason why is because there have been studies that look at all these components that I'm going to talk about with graded motor imagery in differing orders, and there's a difference in outcome. So there is a specific order that is uh, shown to be beneficial. So I have uh, nothing to disclose, and uh, here's your outline. So um, we'll talk a little bit about the history behind this, the epidemiology, how patients present, um, the proposed pathophysiology, although I'm not going to get too in-depth about this, diagnosis and differential, and then treatment, including graded motor imagery. And again, like I said, this is a diagnosis that's very near and dear to me because um, being the director of the acute pain service at Barnes-Jewish Hospital, it's a, it, I don't know if, how many of you are familiar with that hospital, but it is a, it is a massive complex. Um, we have over 120 operating rooms, and we are 
outside of Mayo, I think we're like so, sort of the second largest operating center in, in the Midwest. And so we see a lot, we're a tertiary care referral center, and we see a lot of patients who end up developing CRPS, whether it's from trauma or from surgery, as you probably are well aware. And so um, in a very short amount of time, we've accrued a, a large patient population that uh, for a lot of institutions might take a very long time to accrue. There we go. So this is a patient that presented to me um, a couple of years ago who, uh, very interestingly, was trying to clean out a candlestick and it had some wax in there. So he was using a knife to clean out this candlestick. And he ended up scratching this little area here. I, I don't know if you can see this, but it's just like a little nick right here. I'm going to come over here. It's like right over there. It's a small little nick. He basically nicked the, the dorsal sensory branch of the radial nerve, this tiny little nerve. That's all, that's all that happened. And he presented with this hand, which for those of you who treat CRPS would clearly see the signs and characteristics that we tend to see in patients with CRPS. He had been dealing with this for about uh, 12 weeks, three months, no, four, four months, excuse me. He came to me with about four months of this, with severe pain. And the reason why I'm starting off with this case is because I'm going to show you exactly what we, what we are talking about. But what I had him do is I started him off on low-dose naltrexone. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that, but I started him with low-dose naltrexone and gabapentin. By the way, he came to me on opioids. So we, we weaned him off of the opioids, and we put him on low-dose naltrexone, gabapentin. We used the stellar ganglion block, not as the mainstay of therapy. We used it just to uh, boost him in the ability to do graded motor imagery. So he had his first session of graded motor imagery. Two weeks, late, two weeks later, so he's been like this for four months. Two weeks later, he comes to me like that. In two weeks. And then... He had his second stellar ganglion block to help facilitate him doing the second session of graded motor imagery, and his hand came back like that. That was four weeks later. Off of opioids, fully functional, pain was a zero to one out of 10. This is what I'm talking about in treating CRPS patients. This is how we do it at WashU. And so what's really funny is that it's a program. We have all our patients go through it, and we get a large referral base. And everybody thinks, okay, well, this is how you're supposed to treat CRPS. But like I said, most people just aren't unaware of this yet. So let's talk about the beginnings of CRPS. So you may have heard of the term causalgia. It was first described, the phenomenon of CRPS, was first described by this gentleman called Silas Ware Mitchell. And this was back around the time of the Civil War. He published this interesting publication called Gunshot Wounds and other injuries of nerves back in 1864 as a result of him treating all these patients that were having these um, severe lancinating neuropathic pain qualities after traumatic injuries to the Civil War. And so a lot of people think that the term causalgia, because the term causalgia is oftentimes used in conjunction with CRPS type 2, right? And CRPS type 2 is when you have a known nerve lesion. And so there's, this off, there's often this misnomer where um, patients think that the term causalgia is because you know the cause, when in fact the term causalgia comes from the Greek word causis, which means burning, and algos, which means pain. So it's basically a description of the type of pain that, that patients are having. It's not really supposed to be specific to CRPS type 2, even though we, we tend to use that. But here's an example of what he 
He wrote, long after the trace of the effects of a wound has gone, neurologic symptoms are, part, are apt to linger, and too many carry with them throughout long years this final reminder of the battlefield. And he uses this case, this is case 24 in his book. He goes, this gentleman, 42 years old, shot in the left arm, injured the ulnar nerve. 50 days later, he has pain below the elbow, down into the hand. It is burning. It is tingling. It is intense, and it's increasing. The entire hand is sore to touch, but the tact is unimpaired. The hand is swollen. The palm is red. The, cape, the patient has kept the hand wet ever since he was hurt. So this is describing what? Symptoms that we often see with CRPS. Hyperesthetic conditions, anesthetic conditions. It's not just hyperesthetic, but we can see anesthesia, almost like an anesthesia dolorosa, and neuralgia, burning. So later on, and the reason why I'm going through this history is because I want you to understand certain terminology and where certain treatment algorithms came from because of where it was based off of historical context. So we start seeing this in the Civil War, and around the early 1900s, Paul Sudik started to notice muscle atrophy and demineralization of the bone in, in these patients. So, and in fact, he described it as patchy osteoporosis of the small bones of the hands or feet and the distal metaphysis of the forearm or tibial bone. And that's where the term pseudix dystrophy came around. How many of you have heard of pseudix dystrophy? A few of you. So this is where this came around. And this is where the idea of the triple phase bone scan, have you heard of this? So it's funny because I still have surgeons who will request a triple phase bone scan to diagnose CRPS. Is that something that we do now? We shouldn't. We shouldn't be depending on imaging to diagnose this condition. But that's why people do that, and that's why people are also using things like calcitonin to treat CRPS because of this. And so I'm just kind of giving you that historical context. Then, interestingly enough, in 1939, this very peppy French surgeon, his name uh, being uh, René Lariche, describes this interesting context. So I'm going to give you this example. A 37-year-old female received the gift of a hare, a, a, a rabbit, and she cut it up with a view to make a well-known marinade. And she, unfortunately, pricked her index finger with a spicule of bone. The next day, all trace of the injury had vanished, and it was forgotten. The hare was eaten, but it had its revenge. You can see the French style of of uh, narration. At the end of the week, the pricked finger became painful. It felt as if on fire, yet there was no sign of inflammation. The slightest touch gave a disagreeable sensation. Two months later, she's in continuous pain, and she has undergone a, a complete change in her general character. She slept badly. She ate very little. The hand was moist, somewhat cold, and that pricked finger was rather redder than that of the other hand, and somewhat atrophied. Radiographically, there was decalcification of the first phalanx. So you can see where that pseudix dystrophy is starting to, to show its face. On several occasions, I have made use of infiltrations of the stellate ganglia. Here's your first stellate ganglion block in 1939 by, a by the French surgeon René Lariche. What's interesting is, because of this, the idea that 
the sympathetic nervous system was involved in CRPS became more prominent. And so in 1947, the term reflex sympathetic dystrophy, or RSD, came into use after an article that was published by James Evans that assumed that the sympathetic nervous system was involved in the abnormal activity observed in the affected extremities. He published this paper because he created a sympathectomy for what he called reflex sympathetic dystrophy in these patients. It was actually published in a gynecological obstetric paper. And so because of this, this idea of RSD and the sympathetic nervous system with stellate ganglion infiltration and whatnot became in vogue, and it became sort of what people did for these patients. The problem with those of you who treat CRPS is you know very well that the sympathetic nervous system is not consistent. At least it's not consistently involved in CRPS. Nor is it a reflex mechanism, nor do you always see dystrophy, right? So the special consensus group of the IASP, or the International Association for the Study of Pain, gathered together in 1994 to develop um, a diagnostic set of criteria, which allowed for a more broad inclusion because of how much variability we were seeing in this disease process. So I'm going to get to that in just a second because that was the first set of changing that term RSD to CRPS in 1994. And then it got a further, um, I should say, a, a further uh, referential improvement by uh, what we call the Budapest criteria that I'm going to talk about in a second. But let's talk about the epidemiology. So how does CRPS occur? We know it happens after trauma, but what kind of trauma? Well, this is just an example out of uh, University of Washington where they categorized patients who were uh, diagnosed with CRPS and what was the inciting event. And it turns out that the majority of these are actually sprains and strains. It's not the fracture that we tend to think about. And what's interestingly even further is that a lot of these are post-surgical. So surgery has been shown consistently to be a nidus for the development of CRPS. And in fact, a lot of people after surgery, when we talk about persistent post-surgical pain syndromes, you have to be very careful about ruling out the diagnosis of CRPS in these patients because that can definitely be a potential source of involvement. What's even... Uh, more interesting is the fact that a lot of these is spontaneous. It's just, it just happens. And there is no inciting event, which is very strange. CRPS can occur at any age. However, pediatric patients are a much smaller subset of patients. Less than 10% of CRPS patients are pediatric. And it is common in younger adults. The mean age is about 42 years of age. The mean age at the time of injury is about 38. The incidence of CRPS, both types 1 and 2, are estimated to be about six in 100,000, so it's pretty rare. It is 2.3 to three times more frequent in females than males. We don't have a very clear understanding why. However, it involves a single limb at the early stage. It can change, and I'm gonna show you some examples in a second. The mean duration of symptoms before being evaluated at a pain center has been shown to be about 30 months. So the problem here is that people get lost in the system and so part of what I do at WashU is I've been training surgeons and I've been training a lot of the primary care physicians and the frontline practitioners to have CRPS at the forefront of their differential diagnosis in these types of patients because timing is of the essence when treating these patients. So I talked about surgery, right? Orthopedic surgery is just fraught 
with a lot of compl potential long-term complications, CRPS being one of them. In 2004, Srinivasaraja published this paper looking at the estimated CRPS based off of orthopedic surgical cases and surgical volume. It turns out that the largest percentages are, for example, wrist fractures in uh, Dupuytren's contractures, in ankle fractures. So again, trauma, right? There's this overlying theme of trauma. But knee, arthroscopic knee surgery is a big example of this. And the reason why is we, we talk about this, especially with persistent knee pain syndromes after surgery, you've heard of the term genicular neuralgia, right? And we're finding more and more about these tiny little nerves, the genicular nerves. And there is no such thing as genicular nerve, right? So it's a term that we give these, these tiny offshoots that come off of the vastus lateralis, the vastus medial, the vastus intermedius, the retinacular branch, or the inframedial branch of the saphenous nerve, right? These are tiny little nerves that we just collectively group and call them genicular nerves, right? But when surgeons are going in and doing the surgery, they're not going to be making sure that they don't nick those nerves, right? These are tiny nerves. And we didn't, they didn't even think that this was involved in any of this stuff beforehand. And so oftentimes, we see this in patients that have had knee arthroscopic knee surgeries or knee replacements. <clears throat> and the problem is that it is increasing in frequency. So I don't know how many of you guys know this, but you know, I think in the year 2016, there was, I think, more than 700,000 knee replacements in the United States. And by 2020, um, the projection is there will be an incidence of over 1 million knee replacements annually in the United States per year at a rate of about 4% you know, or even as high as 13%. And in fact, this is 2004 data. And the publications now will tell you that the incidence of CRPS um, or persistent, or I should say persistent pain after surgery in the knee replacement is as high as 20%, one out of every five. And so when you look at this, look at the whopping numbers of uh, development of CRPS per year on, a, on, a, on an annual basis. There is no correlation between the severity of the trauma and the degree of CRPS symptoms. Case in point, my example that I gave you in the beginning, right? The guy didn't even think much of it. It was just like a little nick of this tiny little nerve. He didn't think much of it, but his hand just blew up, and he didn't know why. So how do these patients present to you? They have all these different kinds of clinical aspects. There's sensory pain, there's motor involvement, um, autonomic symptoms that you might be seeing, like color changes that we'll talk about in a second. There's inflammation. There's trophic changes that are occurring in the fingernail bed and in the hair growth. And then there's obviously psychological things going on, right? These are patients that are typically high-functioning individuals. And they're coming into you because no one in the medical field has been able to create this diagnosis. And you know what really sucks for my patients? I hate to say that term, but you know what really hurts them? Is the fact that they've been passed around from doctor to doctor to doctor healthcare practitioner, and nobody's really understanding what's going on. Then they show up in our, in our pain management center. I walk in, and I can diagnose it, like before they even start talking, right? I, I just see it, and, it's, and it is what it is. And, and then they just confirm it based off of their history and the signs and symptoms. And within five minutes, I tell them, this is exactly what's going on. And they curse me for it. Like, who are you to just like walk in in five minutes and diagnose me with what like five other physicians couldn't tell me what was going on with me? It's very frustrating for them. And so that's why it's so important in, when we talk about this in, in, in pain conferences to bring the awareness of CRPS so that it's in your differential diagnosis. What are the sensory changes that we see? We see allodynia and hyperalgesia. 
So I'm going to be very specific about those terms. Allodynia and hyperalgesia are not the same thing. We use them interchangeably, but that's not correct. So this is a patient in chronic pain. So this is a normal pain response curve. And a patient who has chronic pain has this leftward shift of the chronic pain curve. So what happens when you have a leftward shift is that a patient who would normally have no pain to this stimulus, so here's a 0 out of 10, okay? When you shift it to the left, that patient that was a 0 out of 10 will now describe it as a 4 out of 10 pain. So allodynia is a painful response to a normally non-painful stimulus. However, hyperalgesia is when you have a patient who would normally describe the painful stimulus as a 1 out of 10, but in fact, when it's shifted to the left, will now describe it as a 9 out of 10 in this example. So this is an exaggerated response, an exaggerated painful response to a normally very low painful response stimulus. Does that make sense? So what I mean by that is that in patients with CRPS, they'll often tell me, Dr. Butchers, I can't tolerate uh, a fan blowing on my arm, right? Or I can't tolerate my bed sheet touching uh, my arm. And that's like the, pro you know, the, the, the prototypical uh, example that people will patient. That's allodynia. It's not hyperalgesia, right? So I just want to make sure that we use the right terminology. They will also describe hyperesthesia, which is increased sensitivity to sensory stimulation. It's not necessarily pain, right? Hyperesthesia is not hyperalgesia, but they'll tell you when, they, when I brush their hand or they'll just they'll say, I feel weird. I feel pins and needles all over when you do that. They'll also describe hyperpathia, which is an abnormally exaggerated subjective response to painful stimuli. And you'll see this, autonomic signs of CRPS. So in 80% of cases with CRPS, you will see edema. You'll see color changes, temperature changes. It could be either warmer or cooler. Sweating. It could be increased sweating. It could be reduced sweating. But there's a change in, in autonomic signs in these patients. This is a poor pediatric patient that I took care of when I was at Hopkins. And you'll see this motor symptom. This was the clearest example of motor symptoms that I could find. So this poor little child you can see is having a contracture of their arm. Here's this, it's swollen and it's painful. And you see this contracture that's starting to develop and it was uh, exhibiting signs of tremor and weakness in that extremity. You'll see trophic changes. What do we mean by that? Altered nail growth. You can see, I want you to examine the nail bed in patients who exhibit symptoms and signs of CRPS and look at how that nail is, and you always have to have them remove the non-painful shoe, right? You have to compare. And that's always something that I always tell my trainees. When I walk into a room, if I walk in and I see that, the, that the, the painful one has the shoe off or the sandal off because they can't tolerate a shoe, but the other one is like still in its socks and shoes, I tell them, you did not examine that patient appropriately, right? You have to compare. And so... We oftentimes see alterations in the nail bed and altered hair growth. And what's interesting is that <clears throat> Srinivasaraja, who is 
It was the former division chief of pain management at Johns Hopkins, who was sort of my mentor, and um, would, would tell me in privately, he would say, you know, Mike, I have a question to you, and I'm going to pose this. I want you to just think about this outside the box. How much of hair growth, the altered hair growth that we're seeing, is just the fact that the patients are unable to shave in that area, right? They can't, they can't touch. It's so painful. So they don't shave. they'll shave the unaffected extremity, but they won't shave the painful stimulus. And he said, I, he said, I'm just asking you to question the altered hair growth. Now, that's one area or one way to look at it. But if you were to compare like, people who basically don't shave either, either extremity, you will see thicker, coarser hair in the affected extremity. And you'll see these skin changes, this, this, this trophic skin change that you're seeing in the affected uh, foot here on the left side of this patient. So here's one, something that I want to highlight to you. I want you to look at the difference between early and late CRPS. So in early CRPS, patients will talk about pain, color difference, edema, temperature differences, limited movement, increased pain with exercise. But at 12 months, this edema starts to go away. And that's a hallmark of a shift between early and late CRPS, is that edema starts to go away and you, get to get, you start to begin um, the, atro the atrophic changes, the atrophy that we start seeing in the much later stages of CRPS. What about the severe complications that can result because of CRPS? It turns out <clears throat> these patients, and look at the difference between upper extremity and lower extremity CRPS. These patients are more apt to getting infections, ulcers, chronic edema, dystonia, and myoclonus. And it's much more frequent in prevalence in lower extremity CRPS than it is in upper extremity. And we see this clinically. Those of you guys taking care of CRPS patients of the lower extremity often have a much harder or more difficult time to, to help with these patients than those with the upper extremity. It's something that we know. <clears throat> Psychological changes occur. Fear, anxiety, suffering, depression, failure to cope. But the issue here, I've, I gave this talk to a group of lawyers because oftentimes this is a result of, a, of an injury at work, right? And so lawyers get involved, and you won't, you'd be surprised at how many people have came up to me before the talk and said, so this is all psych, psychiatric, right? Psychogenic. It's all in their head. They just want something. And clearly I just showed you these pictures. I can't fake that, right? Um, so... They'll say, yes, CRPS is a psychiatric illness. But that's obviously not true based on what we just talked about. But it can cause a psychiatric illness, right? The repercussions of CRPS can cause depression, can cause anxiety. They'll say uh, psychiatric illness or personality disorder are predisposing factors for CRPS. The result actually is that that's not true, but that those factors could potentially modify the course of CRPS. They could make it worse if you don't try to address those issues in treating patients who develop CRPS, right? Because you're treating them in a box. You're saying, okay, you have these symptoms, but there's other stuff happening in their life that's clearly affecting their pain, right? And so we, we tend to focus on things that we know we can handle, and sometimes we don't want to get involved in all the social aspects of their life, like the fact that they're going to lose a job and that their wife is divorcing them or husband is divorcing them, and their kids hate them, and their life is in shambles. And we all know, and they can't sleep at night, and we all know that those things feed into pain. And I can't stress to you enough 
the multidisciplinary components of pain man proper pain management. So this is a situation when you take care of this patient that you definitely need to refer to a, a um, pain psychologist to at least address those things with the patient because treating them in in a box is not going to, they're not going to magically get better. It's not McDonald's drive through So CRPS can spread. What do I mean by that? Well, it can, it can spread contiguously, meaning like, okay, so the hand is affected, and it can start spreading up the hand into the uh, distal forearm and then up into the proximal, forearm, uh, proximal arm. There can be independent spread, so it can occur in a distant, non-contiguous area. And it can even have mirror image spread. So I've had patients where they, their left hand was affected, and then suddenly it appears on the opposite hand on the right side. Case in point, this is a patient with both upper and lower extremity CRPS that I had that were two years apart. These, were, these pictures were two years apart. So this patient had CRPS in, in her right hand, um, and then we treated it, and she got better. Two years later, she comes to me like this, and she had no injury. It just happened. And we had to treat it through graded motor imagery and all that stuff later, and she started getting better. So it begs the question, are we dealing with a systemic illness? I'm just, it's just a thought out there, because there's still questions and theories about what's happening, but we can talk more about that later. So what's the pathophysiology? Well, we know that there's inflammation involved, clearly, based off of the edema that we're seeing. Autonomic dysfunction, we talked about it in terms of the temperature differences that we see, the modeled appearance of the hand, neuroplastic changes occurring in the CNS, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. And then there's this question about ischemia reperfusion injury. So is, is, is basically an insult causing ischemia and then reperfusion causing this injury to occur? And it's a theory that was brought up around 2012 that people are still looking into. Let's go a little bit more in depth. What about inflammation? So we know that neurogenic inflammation is happening. Why? Because we, there are increased levels of substance P, of CGRP or calcitonin gene related uh, uh, peptide causing vasodilatation and then substance piece causing plasma protein extravasation. And then there's inflammatory cytokines, elevated levels of IL-2 and TNF-alpha. And in fact, also IL-6. In the acute stage, we see that there's sympathetic vasoconstrictor reflexes are inhibited. And then in the chronic stage, we start seeing vasoconstriction in cold skin. It leads to impaired capillary nourishment it can affect the nail beds that we talked about. But these are some of the things that we see from a sympathetic involvement if autonomic dysfunction is something that's part of the symptoms that are involved. It's not consistent, though. This is what's really interesting. And this is something that I want you to take away because of when we talk about graded motor imagery in just a second. Something is happening in these patients in the central nervous system. Case in point, this is a functional MRI of a patient. This is published uh, in... A, um, uh, 2004, actually, this, this publication. And this is a patient that had acute CRPS. They went through an fMRI, and they looked at the voxels that uh, corresponded to the patient's upper extremities. And notice that the voxels are different between the affected extremity here on, this is the right side of the patient, and the left side. And then the patient underwent treatment and resolution of their CRPS symptoms. So you can look at the voxels here on the right side, this right-sided image, and you can see that now they are like mirror images of each other. It's back to normal. So something was happening in the patient's brain, neuroplasticity, when the patient was having symptoms. So 
When I talk about central nervous system changes, I want to get a little bit more in depth. And I, how many of you went to Sean Mackey's talk? This, it was, he had talked about biomarkers of, of pain. So he sort of touched about this. So chronic pain is associated with generalized and regional reduction in gray matter. So he was talking about it, of like, can we use this imaging to um, categorize patients or even predict or, or even um, uh, diagnose patients with pain? And obviously, the, the consensus is not yet. We're not there. But um, this is not something that we find in patients with acute pain. It's only in chronic pain patients. And the percent of atrophy has been correlated with the duration of pain. And we see this consistently in these three areas, the cingulate cortex, which is associated with motivation and an emotional response to pain. We see this in the insula, which is the magnitude of pain and the awareness of body states. And we also see this in the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is associated with integration of sensory input and short-term working memory. So this is a study that was published by Semenowitz in 2011. And he looked at patients. This is not patients with CRPS. This is patients with axial low back pain. Okay, so I just want to forewarn you. I don't want you to think that this is what's going on in CRPS patients. I'm using this as an example of patients in chronic pain. This is axial low back pain. You can see the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, ventrolateral. You can also see the insula. They're all affected in these patients. There's cortical thinning. The, these patients then ended up getting radiofrequency ablation, which I don't know if they're going to talk about in the conference here, but um, we sometimes use radiofrequency ablation to treat axial back pain if they have facet arthropathy. Okay? And they got better, and they felt better. Six months later, they re-imaged those patients. And if you look at the bottom here, you'll see changes in that thinning matter that you see up on the top, that there was actual regrowth of, the, of those cortices that were actually thinned out from pain. It's interesting because when you look at this, I don't know why they mistranslated these slides. But in any case, so um, this is the changes in cortical thickness. This was the control group. These are patients who got sham radiofrequency ablation. They didn't get it. And then these are patients who did get um, radiofrequency ablation. And you can see that it increased by as much as 0.06 millimeters in thickness in the cortex. So something is happening in the central nervous system in patients in chronic pain. Let's go back to diagnosis and differential. We talked about these signs and symptoms. I'm not going to go in depth again. We know this by heart. But let's go back to that IASP diagnostic criteria, the first ones that were set back in 1994. They said that basically there should be some sort of noxious event or a reason for immobilization. Do you know what is like the typical re like immobilization instance that like sets off CRPS? Casting. Yeah, casting. So they get hurt, they get casted, cast comes off, this is what it looks like underneath. Disproportional pain, allodynia or hyperalgesia from that event, signs and symptoms of any evidence showing edema, skin changes, blood flow in the region of the pain, and that you can't explain this pain by any other reason. This was the original CRPS diagnostic criteria. It was developed in 94. It was way too vague. Okay, how many symptoms do they need? How many signs do they need? It turns out that there was very high sensitivity for these diagnostic criteria. It was 98%. But it was very, very low specificity, 60, uh, 36%. So it actually led to an overdiagnosis of CRPS. And that's actually why lawyers hate the term CRPS. 
It's because they think it's being overdiagnosed. But that's why the um, IASP, which is actually the special interest group, the neuro, the NUSIG, or the neuropathic special interest group of the IASP, met in Budapest uh, in 2007. And they revised the criteria, which now we refer to collectively as the Budapest criteria. How many of you have heard this? Okay. So if you want to diagnose CRPS, you need to know the Budapest criteria. This is how you diagnose it. It's not with imaging, right? It's not with some biomarker. It's with clinical diagnosis. You have to rest your hands on the patient. You have to listen to the patient, and you have to hear what they say. So they have to report at least one symptom in three out of these four categories. So either they talk about sensory, the hyperesthesia or the allodynia, temperature changes, skin color changes, skin color asymmetry, like vasomotor changes, motor issues, like decreased range of motion, or pseudomotor, edema. So an easy way to rem remember this is, I tell my trainees, three motors, one sensory. Three motors, one sensory. And so they have to report something in three out of those four. Sensory, vasomotor, pseudomotor, or motor. And you, the clinician, you need to see at least one sign in two out of those four categories. Now, if we're doing research on CRPS, it's a little bit more stringent. If you're doing research on CRPS, you need to hear them say something in four out of the four, and you need to visualize something in three out of the four if you're doing research. Okay, let's talk about the criteria now. How is it? Is it better? It turns out that the ISP criteria showed High diagnostic sensitivity, we said it was 98%, but low specificity, 36%. But in comparison, the revised Budapest criteria now has exceptional sensitivity. We're able to retain 99%. Good. But the specificity was also greatly improved. It's now 68%. Much better. So how do we treat CRPS? Well, we use things like anticonvulsants. We use things like antidepressants. Anticonvulsants being what? Gabapentin. Works on what? I tricked the last time, the last group of people I lectured at. GABAPEN works on what mechanism? Calcium. Calcium, thank you. A lot of people actually said GABA. That's the misnomer, right? So it works on the alpha-2 delta ligand of the calcium channel. And so if it works on the calcium channel, what does that even mean? Why is that important to understand the mechanisms behind this? Because when you have a nerve, right, and you have sodium that's conducting down, that's going to lead to a depolarization, and the depolarization leads to what? An efflux of? Calcium. calcium. Exactly. Right? So if you have a calcium channel blocker, then what are you effectively doing? Suppressing that calcium effect. Does that make sense? So that's how we... I'm just being very simple, because there's obviously a lot more going on. But I'm just trying to rationalize how gabapentin works in neuropathic pain. Antidepressants also work. How do antidepressants work? When we talk about pain and hopefully something that you'll get out of, this out of the pain week courses. Pain is a two-way two -way street, right? Pain is from the peripheral painful area, sending afferent information to the brain, right? And then there's what? The descending pathway, right? Which is often overlooked. So the descending pathway, which we used to call diffuse noxious inhibitory control, or DNIC, now we use, we use the term CPM, central pain modulation. Right? How do you, as an individual, modulate your own pain? Some people genetically are predisposed to better ways than others. 
their serotonin and norepinephrine levels are higher. That's how we modulate pain primarily. So now you understand why I just use the magic term, serotonin and norepinephrine, right? So that's why antidepressants work. Because what do TCAs and SNRIs do? They elevate levels of serotonin and norepinephrine, right? And if you have elevated levels of the descending inhibition, you're going to help with what? With pain. Does that make sense? And what's interesting is you're working on two different axes, ascending and descending. When we talk about anticonvulsants and antidepressants, which is why we often do what? Combine the two. It turns out if you look at a publication in Lancet in 2009, they combined an anticonvulsant, and that study was gabapentin, and they added a TCA, and it found that pain relief was not additive, it was synergistic. One plus one equals three, not two. So in clinical practice, everyday practice, we tend to use the combination of antidepressants and anticonvulsants in patients with neuropathic pain, not just specifically to CRPS, but in general. And we remember to use side effects to our advantage. So we know that, for example, antidepressants can make you sleepy. So when do we advise patients to take it? Take it at night. Don't take it in the morning. And in fact, that'll help with their sleep, improve pain, and in fact, improve sleep and it actually produces architecturally, REM, architecturally sound REM sleep. It's not like a Band-Aid, like Lunesta or anything. Now you understand why alendronate is used. We talked about what? Pseudix dystrophy, right? And this demineralization that we see. And so there are studies that show that alendronate can actually be very useful in patients with long-term chronic CRPS that have exhibited signs, or I should say, the, the imaging results that have demineralization or, or um, osteoporosis in the affected extremity. We also talk about free radical scavengers. So vitamin C. I'm going to talk about vitamin C because I think a lot of people, um, they, I heard a yes, that's good, um, and DMSO cream or um, dimethyl sulfoxide. And I'll talk briefly about low-dose naltrexone. Let's talk about vitamin C, okay, because you'll be surprised after, after I've given my talks to the orthopedic surgeons and the plastic surgeons, this is what they do now with all their patients perioperatively. It's interesting. So I'm going to give you two studies. This one was actually kind of old, 1999, but it was published in Lancet. And what they did is they gave 127 wrist, there was 127 wrist fracture patients. So they basically split them up. Half of them got 500 milligrams of vitamin C, or the other half got placebo, 50 days. They looked at one-year follow-up they found that only 7% of patients in the vitamin C group developed CRPS, and that 22% of patients in the placebo group developed CRPS. So they were like, hmm, this is interesting. So a slew of papers and publications stemmed from this, from different groups. And so I always like to look at things in aggregate, and that's always fraught with issues, of course, especially when you're doing meta-analyses. However, when we look at this data, that was recently published in um, 2015, they looked at a, a, a large number of studies. In fact, it was over 700 studies that looked at the use of vitamin C in patients with CRPS symptoms. And it's very rare when you're looking at all this information to actually provide with high-level evidence. But in this meta-analysis, they actually showed that two grams of preoperative vitamin C plus one gram of vitamin C for 50 days prevent, helped prevent CRPS um, development around ex the time of extremity surgery. It's very interesting. And so since this publication and you know, my lectures with different orthopedic groups and 
plastic surgical groups, they've implemented this as part of their practice. So they'll give patients on the morning of surgery two grams of vitamin C, and they'll um, have them supplement with vitamin C for 50 days. And again, it has to do with that free radical scavenging that we, we, talk about, uh, we talked about earlier. What about low-dose naltrexone? How many of you have heard of low-dose naltrexone? Good. I love LDN, okay? This has been an amazing thing. So Sean Mackey and his group in Stanford about six, seven years ago found that naltrexone is actually an old drug, right? It's generic. It's been around for a long time. And it's been used at higher doses, 50 milligrams or 100 milligrams, to treat patients who have an abuse problem, like an opioid abuse problem. So it's kind of like antabuse, right? If you're on naltrexone and you take an opioid, what are you going to do? You're going to vomit and retch, and you're not, it's going to help prevent you from taking it. It turns out that it, there is this prevailing concept in pharmacology of a paradoxical effect that occurs with a large number of drugs if you give a much lower dose than the lowest dose you clinically give a patient for a particular problem. Case in point, I'll give you an example, morphine. If I give a really low dose of morphine, it causes pain, which is interesting. Okay? Now, it turns out that if you give a really low dose of naltrexone, it actually helps pain in patients. And what kind of pain? We're talking about pain, chronic pain patients where we feel like there is an increase in central nervous system sensitization, where there's neuroinflammatory changes. What kind of pain? I'm talking about CRPS. I'm talking about multiple sclerosis and these types of specifically fibromyalgia, where we think fibromyalgia is the central sensitization that's occurring. So we have used low-dose naltrexone on our patients at Washington University developing CRPS. And we use that in conjunction with graded motor imagery and with gabapentin with excellent results. And it also helps get our patients off of opioids too. Because they can't be on an opioid with low-dose naltrexone, right? It's going to make them nauseated. <clears throat> what else is there? So baclofen. So why do we, do we use baclofen? Well, we just talked about how motor there's a motor component to some of these chronic pain issues with CRPS. And baclofen is an interesting drug because of all the muscle relaxants that are out there. Baclofen works on what receptor? GABA B, right? Think of B for baclofen. So GABA B is what is the, the um, target with baclofen. And the studies show that baclofen does have a vague neuropathic component to it. What kind of patients did they look at? It was trigeminal neuralgia patients. So I'm going to forewarn you. It's not like all neuropathic patients. But in trigeminal neuralgia patients, the use of baclofen was actually somewhat helpful in these patients. And so we do think that there may be some component of neuropathic improvement with that medication. We tend to use that kind of muscle relaxant if we are going to use a muscle relaxant in patients with this type of pain. We talked about there's conflicting data for calcitonin. Back in the old days, they used to put an IV in the affected extremity, put a tourniquet, and inject verapamil and, and, and all these things to help vasodilatation. That was disastrous. Didn't do anything. Okay. Do nerve blocks help? And the answer is maybe. Not all the time. Okay. Turns out that sympathetic nerve blocks can help identify a subset of patients that we think may have sympathetic component to it. See, the problem was that this is what people did all the time to treat CRPS. I don't know how many of you, like, you know, I had a patient come up to me and said, Dr. Boutros, 
I, uh, I'm just getting nowhere. And, and so I tell them, what have they done? And they said, well, they've done a lot of sympathetic blocks on me. How many did they do? Well, I've had 25. And I'm like, 25? And you'd be surprised that, like, yeah, they just, you know, every week they had me coming in and doing a block. So these things don't last, okay? It's just important to understand. It can help sort of identify sympathetic involvement. But the problem was that we kept looking at this as a disease entity of the peripheral nervous system. However, there's, as I showed you, there's central nervous changes uh, that are occurring. So we were only meeting these patients halfway. And that's why we weren't getting what we were getting now with graded motor imagery. Um, this is an example. We, when we do a stellar ganglion block, we, we use an ultrasound at Washington University. I'm not going to go into the specifics of it. I think I had, I don't know if this will work. Well, we had a video that's showing it, but eh, it's not something that we need to worry about. What's interesting is this. You have a patient that had CRPS. Now they're better. Uh-oh. They need to go for like a shoulder replacement. Are they at risk of developing CRPS after that surgery? The answer is yes. So what do we do? Well, it turns out that there's actually very good evidence to perioperative sympathetic blockade to help reduce the recurrence of CRPS in patients who are sort of at that phase where they're much better to prevent the recurrence. So this is a study that came out in 2000. It's, again, retrospective, so it's, it's fraught with its own you know, biases, so I'm going to forewarn you. These are patients that had CRPS that were now four to 16 months out of their CRPS. They're better, okay? But they have to have extremity surgery in the same, sur- in the same extremity. Two separate surgeons. This was upper extremity. They had a ganglion block post-surgery. Half of them got it. Half of them didn't. And in the patients that got the sympathetic block, only 10% of them developed CRPS, and in the patients that did not get the block, a whopping 72% had recurrence. So it turns out that doing a sympathetic block around the perioperative time frame, and what do I say by perioperative is within seven days, okay, um, can actually help reduce the recurrence. And that's what a lot of our surgeons do. And in fact, a lot of the surgeons at Washington University will refer patients to the clinic to get a preoperative ganglion block or a lumbar sympathetic block literally the day before their scheduled surgery. They'll get it done, and then they'll come back like within a week after their surgery, and it has dramatically reduced the recurrence rates. Um, so sort of on the fringes are ideas of sympathectomy, but you can get a post-sympathectomy deaffrontation pain syndrome. We don't advise that. Spinal cord stimulation has been shown to be significantly, uh, show significant improvement at 6, 12, and 24 months after implementation. Those are typically we reserve for patients who have not had good responses to what we normally do. So let's talk about graded motor imagery. Finally, we're there. Okay? So what is graded motor imagery? It is sequential vertical involvement of areas that are uh, building up to what we call mirror therapy at the very end. And the sequence of graded motor imagery has been shown to be very important. The first stage, so this is sort of everything. So there's left-right discrimination, which I'm going to talk about in just a second. Then there's explicit motor imagery, and there's mirror therapy. What's nice about this is that it only entails the patient seeing the therapist three times. So it's not like you're dedicating them to like eight or 16 physical therapy sessions, and they can't do it, and they can't maintain themselves. So that's the first positive 
check mark. What's important to understand is that these patients have to have a, um, they have to go through the entire program, and in fact, they um, will do homework at home. So what is that? So the first stage is limb laterality. What they do is they get a bunch of um, cards. They'll get, um, Im- they'll get left or right hands, left or right feet in weird positions, and they're going to be asked, is it the left or the right? And a lot of them will look at me and say, Dr. Boutrous, this is kindergarten, right? What does this have to do with what I am dealing with? But what essentially it's doing is it's priming the somatosensory cortex. The second, so this is like a picture, left or right. And then they go through this app and they get quizzed on it. And so then they go through the second stage, explicit motor imagery. So if, let's say, the right hand is affected, they'll be asked to view an image or a video of a person who's using the right hand to pick up uh, using a fork, a piece of food. They'll ask a patient to watch a video of somebody dribbling a basketball with their right arm. They'll ask them to close their eyes and then imagine yourself doing that. And just imagining themselves doing that will bring out the pain, will in fact make changes occur right in real time. So you're priming that. The third stage is mirror therapy, and this is what it's all building up to. And in patients who will actually be doubtful of the, of the program, by the time they get to mirror therapy, they understand exactly what's going on because it's pretty incredible for them. What they do is they put the affected extremity behind a mirror. If it's the arm, it'll be in a, in a, a mirror box. And if it's the lower extremity, they'll put a mirror. So they don't get a true, they don't see the true affected extremity. They get a reflection of what? Of the normal hand. And then they're asked to move the painful hand but they're not moving the real painful hand. They're moving, if, let's say it's the right, okay? So they'll say, move the right hand, Mike. They won't move the real right hand, they'll move the left hand. But they'll see the right hand as it's a reflection of the left. And what it's doing is it's resetting the somatosensory cortex. And it's weird for them, because they'll tell me, you know, Dr. Boutrous, I have, because they do this at work, right? They'll do their exercises at work when it's like a break. And they'll say, my colleagues freak out because I'm doing this. I can't see behind the, the mirror, but my colleagues are telling me that my hand is turning colors in front of them, and it's, and it's like swelling up. But it's like what they do now because this helps control their pain. They do this every day, even twice a day, and it has shown amazing results. So what we're doing is we're sequentially activating premotor and motor networks the laterality is changing the premotor aspects. Mirror therapy is the, using primary cortex and S1 cortices. So we're reversing the cortical reorganization that happened in CRPS patients. So this is what we're about ready to publish, the results. So patients who came in on opioids and they went through this treatment process, a whopping, so pre-GMI of the 92 patients, 48 of them were on opioids. After the program, only 19 Functional improvement after GMI. So upper extremity, we use the DASH scale, 20, and then uh, lower extremity, we use the LEFS. Significant improvements, 32%, 25% or so. Their pain scores were halved. So they went from a pre-GMI of 6 out of 10 on average down to a 3.2. So what I hope to achieve with you guys is that CRPS, it's still enigmatic. Why are some people more apt than others? We still don't know. Um, 
not all patients have the same set of symptoms. But as it persists, the focus is towards rehabilitation. That's so important. And that treatment with graded motor imagery has significantly impacted the degree of functional improvement and sensory pain improvement in CRPS patients. So hopefully this gives you a little flavor or a taste of what's to come and hopefully what would be the, stand the new standard for CRPS treatment. Thanks.